Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This series is brought to you by PIMCO, one of the world's leading fixed income managers. For 50 years, PIMCO has been dedicated to helping millions of investors pursue their objectives regardless of shifting market conditions. At PIMCO, ESG investing is an essential part of their commitment to delivering on their clients' objectives, while at the same time supporting long-term sustainable economic growth globally. Hello and welcome to this episode, episode two of a five-part series on ESG investing. Uh, I'm your host, Fraser Jack, and today we are really talking about the advisor's approach, and we're looking at the different uh, things advisors can and, and will be talking to their clients about. Uh, so stay tuned if you're interested in working out uh, how you can approach ESG investing and the conversations that you can have with your clients. Welcome back, Nathan. Thank you. Wonderful to have you here. Now, we're talking about the approach and and specifically how do advisors approach this conversation with clients. Do you want to give us uh, how you do it? Sure. So I've I've been on a bit of a journey with my approach in this space. Um, I used to focus more on a checklist kind of approach where I'd pull out a a checklist and go, is this something you want to invest in? Uh, Yeah, you don't want to invest in or you're you're neutral on. So that sort of avoid more or less. And then I started going into a bit more detail around education, around the different types of you know, sustainable products and advocacy products and impact products and and kind of moving through that um, phase. And I've moved away from that now into focusing more on the causes. Um, now, obviously, I used the Ethos software to do this, but um, that's neither here nor there. I think the, the focus should be on everyone cares about something. So having a list of topics that they can care about and then paying attention to the conversation cues prior to that point. Now, what have they talked about What's you know, with regards to their, their diet, exercise or, or routine or hobbies, um, their location, um, if they've got family, uh, for particularly grandchildren, um, what they do for a job, what they have done for a job. Um, it's really interesting whenever I bring up this sort of this area of the conversation, how often they'll come up, oh, I used to work for, you know, the EPA a few years ago, or I've always been in this space, or occupationally they've aligned themselves, um, as well as things like you know, charitable donations or religious affiliation or anything like that. I think they're key points that you can pick up through the conversation. So that when you get to the the values component or the causes component, which I usually have around the risk profile and, and product preferences point, um, that you can really um, lean on and also show that active listening that you've you've previously identified. They've said this, this, this and this, and it, it doesn't seem so um, disjointed to drop into that conversation. I was gonna, I was just gonna pick up on that uh, that causes conversation and uh, you know and the values. And it, does that mean that you're actually when you say you're talking about the causes, you're actually really putting some tangible uh, content around? You're not just saying, you know, fossil fuels. You're you're going deeper into sort of examples and causes and and, and outcomes and numbers that might say, is this something you want? So it's more tangible for them rather than just a a general um, category. Yeah, I think I think when you look at the tangible causes, they're more broad. They're not fossil fuels. They're climate change. Yeah. Um. They're peace and justice. Um. You know, something as you know, political conversation that comes up which you know at so this really, point in time they're really linked to a value absolutely that yep. who they are um what they do what they think about what they talk about the conversations you have that aren't related to the assets liabilities and specific goals that's the information you can bring in to tie back to the the themes that they would see as important um and so that sort of links you into the initial areas and then from that point you've earned the right to start talking about broader themes and, and I think there's two parts to that there's did you know you could do this and also this is a good thematic from an investment perspective things like water food waste healthcare technology um, these are all generally speaking responsible and, and um, sustainable themes but are also over the next 30 years going to be good places 
to, to your thematics to put your money in. So that that adds to that. And they're also highly diversified. So you start to get a, a broader conversation around asset classes and diversification and, and it all ties in together. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's about, it's the active listening piece. It's identifying, you know, who they are and what they do. Um, and then that gives you the, the license to dive into some of those other areas. And then you go back to the checklist. You can go back to the, 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 the box approach and, but you've, you've done it in a much more holistic manner instead of simply just yes, no's, yes, no's. Yep. Now you mentioned this forms part of your risk profiling and, um, and preferences questionnaire. How long from a practical point of view are you spending on this with, with a, say a new client? Well, I have a, uh, generally speaking, um, I'd have an entire meeting in some instances or half a meeting on these areas. I think risk profiling is not a questionnaire. I think it's an entire conversation. The booklet that your licensee provides to you is the the ability to talk through those questions. But what they say outside of their answers is more important than what which box they check. So, you know, my process will be um, a goals meeting, um, which gives me some insights, and then a strategy meeting. And then sometimes in that meeting, we'll talk product and risk assessment. Sometimes we'll have an entire other meeting to walk through those things before we go to statement of advice. Um, I, I just think it's such an important part that we rush through as a, a compliance checkbox issue. Um, and it's if you look at the AFCA complaints, it's the number one issue advisors face is inappropriate risk profiling. And, and uh, you know, a signature on a, on a booklet that you've hit, you know, yes, no, five out of 10, or you are a, this investor isn't going to save you from that. It's a comprehensive conversation that, that says this is what's important to them. This is their timeframe goals. This is their values. This is their preferences. Um, and I've given them the options A, B, C, and D, and they've self-selected that knowing full well that they understood the options there with therefore informed consent. There's nothing, no one could beat, beat that in a, in a, if it's properly recorded, of course. Yeah. This is, uh, feels to me like you're really allowing the, the clients to take ownership of those decisions that are made in that meeting. I, that's most of my process. So I don't subscribe to the, um, fill out this fact find. I'll see you in four weeks, go do this. Every client of mine goes through a, these are the available options these are the pros and cons of each. I still guide them. I think this is a better one from what you've said here, here, and here. But they need to understand to the barbecue conversation, they can defend themselves if someone, their uncle says, oh, you should get a self-managed super fund, do it this way because I said that. Well, yeah, we thought about that. But we went through that as a process and we didn't do it for these reasons. Um, so, yeah, it becomes a, the informed consent is really what I'm trying to achieve with that, that process of guidance because we're advisor. We advise them, they decide. So I think that's a, it's a softer word than we tell them. We should be listeners, not tellers. Yeah, so your guidance essentially then guides them to solutions to say there are, there are several solutions here that might still meet your needs. You can, you can, you can exercise a preference or, we can, or I can make a recommendation. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So, because sometimes they they go, I'm not sure. It's a bit overwhelming decision, or you know, you'll you'll tell the ones that are more self directed and the ones that need a bit more. You know, give me some better guidance. Um, you don't want to overwhelm them with choices, but I think you know, there's price performance um, and and ethics tends to be sort of three main points when I'm looking at a at a product. And I could go from a, an industry fund, I could go an index approach an industry fund, the industry fund, their ethical option, um, my dark green portfolio and somewhere in between. So I'll generally put up three options and say, this is the cheapest way we could go. We could get these costs down as much as possible. Fee was the biggest issue. This is it here. This is the most expensive way and it's got huge amounts of impact and an enormous ethos score and da 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 um, and great alignment. And this is one or two options in between, or we can find something in between what's more or less important to you. And these are the performance figures as well, which you're always, I think we, we've got used to not including them because historical performance, you know, can't be replicated. But I think it is an important thing to bring up. It's a client centric question. They always ask the performance and, you know, a seven year performance is indicative of, of something it may not be future performance, but it's definitely capability and, and competence. So, um, I think within that realm, you know, those three things, clients can make pretty informed decisions or at least give you through the, the way they looked at the, through the faces they pull through their responses. That's, that's it's not necessarily what they say. It's how they say it. 
starts to give you the insight into, okay, this is the way we should go. And there's been times where I've talked them through and they've sat there and gone, oh, you know, not really sure. And I said, well, based off, you know, the way you looked at that and the question she just asked me, would it be fair to say that you're somewhere between here and here and you're looking for something of this level but has cheaper fees? Or And they go, yeah, that's right. Great. I know where we're at. It's not about going here with the choices, you know, choose your flavor. It's using the options as the guidelines or the, the, the of which to, to find the path between, I think is probably the better way. Yep. I think the uh, performance question um, in that, because I, th- I believe the question is mostly in somebody's head, uh, whether they ask it or not, but with an inside a client's head. So just demonstrating that past performance, I guess, you know, you're looking at past performance, but you're comparing, you know, you, as you said, your you, you price, price sensitive uh, indexes all the way through to your ethical portfolios and you're comparing those based on the past. Uh, and it just shows some credibility, I guess. Not, not for well, everything's future, but... based off the past, isn't it? The ethical mm. scores based off the past. The fees are based off the past, um, and the government's own comparison software compares performance and fees. Mm. Um, it is a very relevant option that needs to be considered. Um, it's just not the only thing, and you can't trade only on it. And I think that's where we went too far one way, generally speaking, where we just avoid talking about performance, which is you know, silly. Nathan, thanks so much for coming on and talking about your approach uh, with your clients. We look forward to catching you very very soon. See you then. Welcome back, Karen. Lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Now, we're talking about the advisor's approach and the conversations that uh, advisors have with their clients. Uh, Tell us about some of the conversations that you're having with your clients and how you're introducing these topics. It's a great question. I think think you're going to come across clients that have a varying degree of expertise, I suppose, in ESG issues, depending on the clients that you're looking after. So, um, you know, you might come across a client that it has, you know, great knowledge on a particular topic, maybe because they work in that particular field and they explicitly know they do not want to invest in a particular area. So, I found like, for example, clients that are environmental scientists, for example, with large oil and gas companies know exactly where they don't want to be invested. Or you might have a client that's a social worker, you know, that really wants to focus on issues that are providing social impact, for example. So I've got doctors that work in alcohol and drug rehabilitation clinics. So they really know that they don't want to have any investments in alcohol because, you know, they're trying to rehab people out of that particular role. Um, So depending on the clients that you're servicing and their particular background, I'd sort of get you to lean on, you know, where they're coming from because they'll certainly be ways you can really ask some meaningful questions based on their background, you know, that where they've lived globally in the world, what their um, hobbies are. Um, they might enjoy gardening, you know, and they might know, for example, that they've certainly seen less native bees in their garden or they might be interested in, you know, the impact on native wildlife because of large-scale development and land clearing. So there'll be ways you can tailor your conversations to clients depending on who they are and what's important to them. And that's really, I think, our knack as an advisor is knowing our clients. And I think a lot of us take a lot of pride in, in knowing all of those things about our clients, what their work is and what's important to them and their hobbies are um, and the values that they hold dear. So by doing that, you can really have a nice conversation about where they come from and some issues that they may wish to address actually with their investments. I was going to say it's a really it's a really great uh, starting point, isn't it? Understanding their knowledge, their motivation, and their values during that conversation. That everything then comes back to that, and uh, certainly helps with the with the ideas of you know individualized portfolios for each 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 individual, and gives them something to um to fall back and lean you know hang their head on to say this is why I'm investing this way. Yes, and certainly there'll be issues that they might be neutral and they might not really know about. So, you know, that's where you are, that trusted point of contact to say, this is one view on that particular topic, which, you know, they might comment on. So, whether it's genetic modification or, you know, other things that are maybe more controversial like carbon capture and storage, they might not have any ideas on some of these new technologies, but at least you're raising the question so that it, um, from their point of view, they're aware that you're across um, you know, key thematics that are really driving markets and where does that leave their portfolio? Do they want to be across that? 
Are they neutral on that? Or is that something that actually you've just uncovered that's really important to them that they would like addressed? Yeah. Do you find people are, people are approaching their conversation with, I don't want something? Or is it, or is it sometimes it's more, I, I, I want this thing? Or how do It's you- probably for our clients, it's more I'd prefer to be making money if I was in, invested in these sectors. So they're more looking at the opportunities and the benefits of um, particularly renewable energy and focusing on recycling and doing more with what we've got rather, obviously they do obviously explicitly often say I would rather not be in these areas such as, well, for example, tobacco is an easy one because we know that that has been proven to, you know, have detrimental cancer impacts. So that's often easy or it might be, you know, we've got the Modern Slavery Act so most people are pretty okay avoiding slavery. Um so most of those issues are fairly straightforward um, and certainly the UN has, you know, certain issues that are quite topical and avoiding harm according to those conventions. Most investors would generally agree and nod their head to say, yes, I would prefer to avoid harm and knowing that my money is creating harm in that regard. But the more interesting and probably more uplifting conversations are about where your capital can be put to work in generating a return that's in line with mainstream peers and certainly also delivering that additionality of knowing exactly where the money is going um, and the impact that it's creating and the positive solutions that it's generating. Whereas so it might be, you know, water leak detection or it might be water membranes that the client's particularly interested in because they've worked in, they're a water engineer, whatever it might be. So they find comfort in the fact that they're having an allocation to some of the technologies that are solving some of these issues. Now, you mentioned um, returns and in line with mainstream peers. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something that you're, you bring up to your clients uh, in the conversation or do they ask you about that? Yes, definitely. It's less of a question, I guess, now because most people are fairly um, aware that you don't have to sacrifice returns to invest responsibly. But if clients are unaware of that, I usually point them to, um, there's many research pieces being done globally, but I point them to the Responsible Investment Association for Australasia have done a benchmarking report each year for the last 20 years since the association's been around. And that compares um, an average pool of responsible investments across many sectors. So balanced growth, Aussie shares, international shares against mainstream indices Um, And by showing them that, um, they can see, okay, over the course of that period, how have responsible investments as a cohort performed compared to market? And that gives them some comfort because that's quite a long long time period. Um, And, of course, past performance is no guarantee for future performance. You know, that's fairly clear. But it's good to have something that is impartial, I suppose, because it's the association's data, it's not our data, and it's been going for a long time. Yep. That's a really good, uh, valuable uh, resource. Uh, mm. in, in the previous um, episode when we chatted, you mentioned um, Fasia and, and, you know, the, the, the around disclosures and conversations and in sure. that, uh, you know, 86% of people want to know or have had that conversation. I think it feels like a big part of this is around client understanding, client understanding what their what their money's invested in. Hmm. Oh, definitely. Like you could you could start the conversation, and I think this is a great way. One of my colleagues on the Central Coast, she starts the conversation to say, you know, did you know that like in twenty nineteen, ASIC named climate change as a systemic risk, and present you know, said that the fiduciary duty for company directors needs to include climate change impacts and ESG on their operations, like effective immediately. The central bank, the Reserve Bank, you know, the deputy governor has said that climate change must be factored into all their monetary consistent, you know, decisions. This is not a nice to have anymore. These large bodies are saying that climate change is a factor that's infiltrating all financial performance going forward. So not only is FASIA suggesting that, you know, this code of ethics we need to talk about and what's in our client's best interest, but all of the regulators are saying the same thing for those of us, you know, those higher up on the tree, I suppose, to us. So it is, um, it's important that you ask some questions um, so that you, you know, where your client stands. Yep. And, and just on this, uh, the advisor approach, do you have any practical tools that you use with your clients? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we obviously have a client questionnaire that, you know, specifically outlines many different ethical topics and we could probably add more every year. The responsible investment also has um, 
one that's on their website. I'm pretty sure you're like in a toolkit that you can download fairly easily. Um, just just contact them. Um, and mostly what you're trying to extract from your client in that first questionnaire is say the topic is um, mining, for example, or um, tobacco or whatever it might be. You want to get some sort of response from them, whether it's like, are they neutral on that position? Would they prefer to include it, prefer to avoid it, um, or wish to have a further discussion about the topic because they might not understand the question? So that's a really good starting point. And what I usually do as well is I usually have another open-ended question that says, is there anything in particular that you'd like to focus on in terms of thematics? Um, And that or avoid, for example. So that gives clients a really good opportunity to say, I'd really prefer not to own X or I'd really prefer to support businesses that are involved in Y. And once you know that, you can then start asking them why and what's their background and what are they expecting? What kind of investments do they want? So it's not just equities. It could be sometimes you're able to deliver some of these solutions through, I would say, um, like direct property is also becoming quite a popular way to deliver some of the social benefits that clients are seeking. So the specialist disability accommodation that's being built um, for the NDIS recipients, clients are interested in um, supporting that. Clients might have might be interested in aged care or health care as a solution because they've got elderly parents or they might have a particular desire to support, maybe they've bought an electric vehicle and they really want to support battery technology or whatever it might be. That will give them a chance to provide an answer that's not a yes or a no. They can yep. explain why those things are important to them. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah, so getting your tools straight, exclude, avoid or neutral uh, and then a prioritization process that allows the client to, to understand it. Karen, thanks so much for coming on this particular episode. We look forward to catching you in the next one. Thank you. Welcome back to the conversation, David. Thank you, Fraser. Fantastic to have you along. Now, we're talking about the uh, the approach that advisors take when they're, t- when they're talking to their clients. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot in this. Tell us about how you or the conversation you have with your clients and how you work out how to you know put a portfolio together that's aligned to their values? Yeah, so um, you know, further to our, our last conversation, going from a, a position of uh, a, a default uh, portfolio, which is our, our model portfolio, basically um, already having those ESG or sustainability um, factors built into it, um, starts the conversation at a point where. Um, it, it, it doesn't really, it, it's just, I guess it's just a portfolio. It's not necessarily an ESG portfolio per se, but this is what we think is the best uh, portfolio for to meet your outcomes going forward. So w- with a new client, that that's quite easy. It's just, this is the way we do things. Um, you know, if, if there is a, an issue with it, um, uh, with cost, for, for example, then we, we can scale that back down into um, you know, standard funds or, or index funds, depending on, you know, what their particular pain point point is um, so it, it, it's a little bit more difficult with existing clients um, going from something they're used to from us to something which uh, uh, looks quite radically different um, but uh, again we, we've tried to term this not in any um, save the world kind of framework but uh, what is best for your long-term outcomes and again using that term sustainability very broadly and, and talking about uh, the economic sustainability of, of uh, certain investments and how that goes to meeting your long-term outcomes uh, rather than something which um, you know we can talk about coal saying well it, it's, it, it might be a quick uh, uh, bet and you might make some money out of the next five years but it's not necessarily going to be a sustainable investment going forward and we're not necessarily saying that we're good enough to call time out on when uh, you know Whitehaven is going to finally you know hit um, hit a brick wall or, or woodside or whatever the case may be so um, that part, part of our basic investment philosophy is to put something in place which needs a minimal number of changes if you get it right first time then you know you don't have to make a lot of changes the expense and all that that's involved with that so if you can uh, include sustainability in that as well theoretically you should be able to get more mileage from an investment decision you've made early on yeah so you're you're overlaying both the the, the, the quality 
uh, quality investment um, framework, which you spoke about in the in the previous episode. Uh, with is is this um, also some of your own with your investment philosophy, some of your own values and the business values around that? You know, a better world, better outcome, better place over the long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, when we um, when we got our own license and um, or a year or so ago, we we, we made a couple of significant changes within the business this was about um the investment philosophy but also uh platforms and you know we looked at uh smas and all the other technologies which are out at the moment just to see if our business was doing things as efficiently as it could so um, part of that conversation went to the fact that well if we think about blowing all these things up um why don't we build it how we want it to end rather than incrementally you know looking at a new platform looking at sma looking at this how do we feel about sustainable? And from from uh, an investment research perspective, that made sense to me. But for the other um, uh, stakeholders in the business, the directors and the other advisors, um, they, they were kind of on board suggesting, well, th- this is something that we believe in as well uh, for broader reasons than just the, the business reasons. So it was quite a, a nice, neat fit in, in, that, um, in that period of, of um, you know, going back to the drawing board. Yeah, and certainly if you've got belief in what you're doing, then uh, that's for the right reasons and the right returns and all those sorts of things. Yeah, uh, look, I, I don't think any of us, well, certainly not myself, but any of us would, would say we're um, you know, super salesmen. What we sell is advice, um, not necessarily products. So um, from our perspective, if, if we don't believe on it, believe in it, we can't sell it and we probably shouldn't be selling it um, if, if you you know, take the FASI code and that sort of stuff at its word. So yep. uh, this kind of makes it easier to say, well, this is how I'm invested. This is what we believe in. And, uh, um, you know, it, it'll take a fairly good argument to uh, to convince us otherwise. Yep. Uh, do returns come into these conversations you have with clients? Uh, is there an expectation that, uh, you know, maybe sustainable, uh, you might be sacrificing returns? It, it's very interesting in the current context. So if you look past in, back the past five uh, sorry, three years, um, you, you can actually make a good argument that um, sustainable investments have outperformed. Um, so, so what we do, again, going back to the, um, the, the old uh, chestnut of managing expectations, is basically uh, hose that down. Uh, you know, I had a conversation recently with a client where I said, um, well, you know, the, the sustainable fund did really well during the um, – the downturn last year, um, but if, if you look at it, if you look at it broadly, if uh, your fund held oil stocks uh, and oil went to zero last year at, at a period, you would have underperformed. Um, and by definition, a, a lot of uh, ethical funds did not, so they outperformed for reasons which are unintended, um, relevant but unintended. So th- that repeating itself is unlikely. Um, so we try to hose down that short-term expectations uh, conversation. Um, but going to the risk management side of it, yes, we're, we're saying that uh, we believe returns will be better, risk-adjusted returns, um, because these industries which are not part of this portfolio uh, just don't have a future. Yep. Uh, are you seeing a little bit of um, well, the, the term greenwashing out there where there's a lot of people coming at things from a certain angle? And saying, "Hey, this, you know, like this, like, as you just mentioned, with regards to, you know, certain sectors do better than others in certain times, and you, you, you don't want to take the credit because you've got to take the blame later on." Yeah. Uh, but you, are you seeing a lot of, uh, you know, people taking the credit? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's it's a it's a very easy pitch for um, fund managers to make now, and and everyone seems to be um, emphasising, even if they're not labelled a, a sustainable or ESG focused fund, um, they are kind of promoting their um, they're bona fide to some extent. So I don't know that that's greenwashing per se. Uh, you know, greenwashing to me it was it is something like um, uh, a couple of years back, there was, it was a, um, an ETF uh, on the Australian market, which was a sustainable Australian equities fund. And, you know, it, uh, it, it excluded um, tobacco and firearms. Uh, and I'm not sure how many listed uh, Australian companies deal in tobacco and firearms exactly. So, you know, you can kind of pick those things out fairly easily. So from, from our perspective, we, we do get this question quite more often now from clients. Um, and again, that's a, a bit of a blowback against the, the, the general, um, you know, popularity of the subject. Um, but uh, again, we, we point to our research and say, well, you know, these fund managers that we're using have been doing this for, you know, 10 or 15 years. It's not like they just um, fell into this. Um, and with with other fund managers getting into this space, um, 
you know, we're brutal. Yep. We, we see ourselves as, as the gatekeeper for the client to everyone that's trying to sell them something. So, you know, it, we, we filter these things fairly hard, well, to the best we can of our ability. The truth keepers. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and just overall, from the client's response, um, how have you found, you know, the conversations and, and, and the approach that you're taking? Um, you know, they, are they mostly very positive about it? Yeah, I think they are because especially for existing clients, I think know that we have a, a fairly um, solid process for, for building a portfolio. Again, to our previous conversation, I've been building these for our clients for um, nearly 14 years. Um, or not these portfolios, but broader portfolios, and they've gotten comfortable with that. So um, for the most part, um, they have faith that we're – looking after their best interests and see this as being in their best interest. So uh, um, they, they, tend, they tend to be on board. Wonderful. Thank you, David, so much for coming on this episode. We look forward to catching you in the next one where we really tackle the, uh, the idea around impact and social change. Thank you. Welcome back, Claudia and Michelle. Hey, Fraser. Thank you for being part of this particular episode. We are talking about the advisor's approach and all the conversations that advisors have with their clients, uh, specific, well, not specifically, but particularly in that sort of discovery discovery phase and that that entry conversations. Uh, Michelle, what are the conversations and how do you, you have this conversation with your clients? Well, as part of the initial meeting and the fact find, we have an ethical Profile. So, as, a, apart from doing everything else that you do in regular financial planning, like your risk profile and your needs analysis and getting your objectives sorted out, part of the reason people come to see us is because they want to make sure that their money is aligned, invested in a way that's aligned with their particular values and what matters to them. So, we have that conversation initially, and then sometimes like the investment managers might change the way they're investing. And Claudia, who's our analyst, she she tells us, all right, such and such a manager or such and such a company is doing this now. And then we might have to have that conversation with clients saying, well, we've found this out now. Do you still want to be invested in this manager or in this company? Yeah, wonderful. And talk us through that questioning technique. You sort of mentioned it in the last uh, episode when we talked about towards and away from types of motivation. Tell us about the, the types of questioning you're, you're okay, using so we, during we, that profiling. Sorry. Well, so we have a list of different um, things that clients might wish to support with their money. So they might want to support the environment or positive social outcomes, that that sort of thing. Or they might want to avoid pollution, obviously, or weapons manufacturing or what other things? Would you, would you say the clients also generally come to us knowing there is a certain area they don't want to support already? So that sparks the whole conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And then we might have to sometimes make sure that if we, there might be a client that comes who's very keen on um, in renewable energy or something, but we can't make their portfolio all renewable energy. So we have to sort of say, look, that's great, but you need to have an, a portfolio that's going to make money and is not extremely risky. And yeah, Claudia, Claudia comes up with those. Don't put all your eggs in one technology. Yeah, that's right. So it's diversification. But so we have all the regular conversations, but there's an added level with the values and making sure your portfolio is aligned with those things. And and we try to to make that work. We try and be as transparent as possible. So Claudia's job is intense. <laughs> it's it's now it's 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 really good fun. Um, it's you know it, you it's a very positive thing. You you walk into an investment uh, and you say, okay, what does this do? You know you you put on a you know you put on a really um, neutral lens and you you absorb and not just filtering out negative, but you're also trying to absorb where can this investment take you. Where 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 does it stand in um, in our children's life? Yeah, amazing. And it's um it's interesting that you mentioned the the idea that often it's an avoidance of something that is the the primary motivator for somebody to to walk in the door. Um, uh, and yet then you 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 go through the prioritization process and the diversification process, uh, and you're looking at supporting some, avoiding some, supporting others, and uh, and able to 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 use that um, that profiling to then work out your portfolio it sounds um sounds incredible and um and so 
with with uh, with your new clients as they come in, how long is this process uh, taking to to get from sort of that process of I don't want this to uh, through to an investment portfolio? Okay, well that's that's part of the um, onboarding process where we we need to prepare a statement of advice and make sure it's obviously in the best interests of the clients and we meet all the the regulations to provide comprehensive and appropriate advice for everybody. That might take a couple of weeks by the time that we've prepared all that work and then and we've determined the sort of investment that will suit that client and then Claudia is always working in the background putting together our model portfolios and and then we have a, a choice of different investment options and, and that sort of depends on the client. You get a feel of the sort of things that will suit them in, in the initial meeting depending on their investment experience and that sort of thing. But generally, let's say a couple of weeks if they're, if they're ready to invest at that time. Yep, wonderful. And tell us about the different sort of green leaf uh, rating systems that you that you use with your clients or you discuss with your clients? So we, like I said, we, we have to dig down into really trying to know what's under the bonnet, let's say, of, <clears throat> of an investment portfolio. And we tr- we'll be as transparent as we possibly can with the client saying this, this fund might have a couple of, uh, let's say, a bit, one big bank in it. Can you, can you, um, tolerate that or not you know just as an example like and some people are fine okay yeah no I can tolerate that and others are like no yeah yeah I think banks is um is quite a big target among our clients um over here and some clients will see banks that I mean there are different ways to look at banks I mean they are the biggest um capital provider to funding the the new economy potentially um and what do they do with it so at the moment you know the big four are known for um, their lending books to the fossil fuel industry. And every year that changes, that proportion to the total loan book changes. So is that going down? And if it's going down, would a client say, I think this could be a good company that would, you know, would be in that, that um, advantageous, yeah, advantageous position to move and transition and, and encourage that, that lending to the new economy. Um, on the other hand, some clients might say, no, the very fact that they have exposure to that sector, we don't want anything to do with that. And we respect whichever way the client prefers and we try to find a solution that fits them. Yeah, and I suppose yeah. that goes down to the sort of the deep, let's call it a deep green or or a light green and anywhere along that spectrum. So we have clients across the full spectrum of, of, yeah. of that really. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is a spectrum, isn't it? From deep, to, deep to light, and and it can uh, change from uh, company to company, from uh, from year to year. Yeah, I mean, even vaccination is uh, is a topic, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is. Now let's uh, let's have a chat, quick chat about the concept of uh, clients maybe coming in or having a, um, a a pre belief in their minds that maybe ethical investing has had to had to sacrifice returns. Uh, in the past to be to be in that space. Talk to us about what you say to your clients and, uh, around returns. We say definitely we are not about sacrificing returns. We actually try and outperform as much as we possibly can and we're in the business of finance and making you money. And even if you say, like sometimes clients say to me, oh, look, I, I don't even mind, I don't mind if it returns aren't as good and I, I say, look, we will try and get you the best returns we can. And, you know, the portfolio and the research and, you know, all our history and our, our returns history indicates that over the long term the portfolios are either at market level or slightly above. So and obviously there's swings and roundabouts in different market cycles and depending on what's Trending upwards, you know, obviously in a strong mining cycle, we, we won't perform as well. But a lot of other times due to the, the way our portfolios are constructed and the type of investments we go into, we're, we're quite sometimes ahead of the pack in technology because we're looking for the latest technology and, yeah. And, it, and, it, and you know, if, if we look at it from a financial point of uh, a financial analysis point of view, it makes sense because we're looking at efficiency. You know, efficiency adds to the bottom line. 
Uh, we're looking at, you know, if you're looking at um, a circular economy, anything that is recyclable, you're, you know, you're, you're actually supporting um, a, a cost that is an, a, a down, sorry, a reducing operating costs. So it's all financially logical. There's nothing, when you look at renewable uh, energy, you probably think of it more like a um, infrastructure, for example. It's an it's expensive outlay at the start. But as you, you know, as you know, infrastructure is just in maintenance thereafter. So very similar dynamic to traditional or all old technology uh, or old assets. It's just that we're working for something that's um, stronger efficiency. Fantastic. Thank you, Michelle and Claudia. I love that. Uh, I love that term financially, financially logical. I'll uh, hopefully I can use as many more, many more times in the future. Uh, look forward to catching you in the next episode when we talk about uh, impact and social change. Okay, great. Great talking to you, Fraser. Grover Berthe from PIMCO, thank you so much for joining the conversation again. We are talking about the advisor's approach. Welcome to the conversation. Excellent. Nice to, nice to be back with you, Fraser. Now, we are talking about the client conversations uh, and conversations that advisors have with their clients every day. Tell us about what you're hearing and seeing and, and some, of the, so, some of the great advisors and how they're talking to their clients about uh, ESG portfolios. Sure. Well, what, what we're really seeing is, is uh, ESG means different things to different potential clients, different investors. Uh, some interpret that as, as a specific optimization uh, or, or investment uh, strategy with regards to climate and, and environmental issues specifically. And they really use ESG uh, as a proxy for climate. And, and there are certainly many tools that we have um, that we're developing that we utilize uh, to take into account climate risks and climate opportunities. There are others who, who view it as part of their diligence and part of their research efforts and really view ESG as something to be taken alongside many other uh, investment research and bottoms up approaches that, that they implement. And we do that as well. We, we certainly want our ESG process and ESG tools to be utilized for the platform at large and, and do that alongside our, our colleagues across the firm. And then there are those who, who look at ESG as, as a way to really make sure that they're having some, some impact in their capital from their capital beyond, beyond only returns. Um, and, and thinking about the the holistic view of the impact of their capital and looking for certain outcomes, looking for certain metrics to judge the impact of, of where they allocate their, their funds and their proceeds. And that can be something like avoided emissions. That can be something along the lines of, of jobs produced. That can be something along the lines of, of different sectors and areas where that capital has been allocated. So it means different things. And then what's important is to find the right solutions to have a comprehensive set of tools that can be utilized and add value in the specific way that the that the client or, or the partner has has prioritized and, and and explain in terms of what they're looking to achieve. Yeah, really interesting. So there's there's three things there that we sort of covered on the you know the climate, which we'll get to in another episode actually, and then the the impact, which we'll also cover in another episode. Uh, but we're talking about from the research and the, and the bottom up type scenario um, uh, and some of the ESG tools. Uh, tell us about how that. Um, can you give us a bit more in depth into that conversation that um, advisors can have with their clients around uh, adding this to the research and making sure that it's a prominent part of the conversation. Sure. Well, the, what we really prioritize here is, is being first and foremost comprehensive with regards to how we think about ESG across asset classes, how we think about ESG across different parts of, of the PIMCO platform of, of our firm. And we have approaches and frameworks and efforts in corporates. We, we have efforts in municipals. We have efforts in sovereigns, uh, structured credit or securitized. There's this relevancy for from an ESG standpoint in all of these areas. And naturally, there, there are going to be different points to emphasize, different data points to utilize. But, but ESG is, is, a, is, is an integration tool that we use across the, the entire marketplace. Um, and we do that with, with overarching frameworks and tools that the ESG team here that I oversee has developed. We have what we call an ESG taxonomy that's informed by internal research and internal collaboration, as well as external resources such as TCFD, SASB, a variety of other sources. And we, we convert that into frameworks for sectors. Uh, we think about what's material on a sector by sector basis and feed that into an investment recommendation and a view on credit risk and relative value. And so if I had to summarize this this point, it would be that this is relevant across across a portfolio, um, across a mandate, even if the specific asset classes and exposures differ. 
And it's about identifying what's material, um, identifying what those risks are, and, and identifying opportunities to, to drive performance and drive alpha as a result. Yeah. The, now, spoken like an amazing, true fund manager, we're talking logical and practical and uh, you know the, the numbers and making sure that they all stack up and the research is perfect, um, and which is, which is a very important part with a lot of the conversations with their clients. Uh, and then there's the emotional side of it, isn't there? There's the, the conversations around, um, which we'll probably get into later, around how do you want your, your funds to be invested, um, the, the feel-good factor of by doing this, you're doing X, Y, Z, your bit for the, for the globe. That's right, and and it's and and sometimes, like I said, a, a mandate or a strategy will differ, and, and and oftentimes these are not mutually exclusive points. We we have funds and vehicles here that, that are not ESG dedicated, that are not ESG driven on a primary basis, but but are still going to utilize some of the information and research that that my team produces because it, it's fundamental to to risk and return and, and thinking about value. And, and on the other side of the spectrum, we have funds that have very specific orientations focused on, on specific outcomes. For example, a, a climate bond fund concept and vehicle we have here, where it, it's, it's really going to heavily emphasize some of the outputs and, and suggestions from a climate perspective, not even all environment, but really climate. And it's going to, to place significant emphasis on those topics. Um, but but the, the, the point is, is that uh, depending on what, what an investor has in mind and what they want to prioritize, there is a way to, to, to strike a solution. Um, and our goal here is to, is to be as, as market leading as we can in terms of those, those capabilities. Yep. Now, one of the uh, things uh, uh, an investor may say, not knowing the answer to this, to their, uh, to their advisor is the, is the conversation around our ESG returns lower. Do I have to sacrifice returns um, to have um, something that's you know, impactful or better for the environment? What, what do you say to those uh, investors or what, what can an advisor say to those investors? Well, it's, it's not a binary question or, or a black and white question, and, and it depends on what the criteria of the strategy is. Now, for some, ESG primarily or even solely means exclusions. It means taking parts of the market and saying, I'm not going to invest in those. I don't want to invest in those. And if you take out large parts of the market, uh, significant parts of the market from an opportunity set, then you, you miss out on potential opportunities that may come up in those areas over some period of time. And similarly, you, you may end up with more concentration in other parts of the market uh, because you've reduced your opportunity set. And that can have an impact on, on, on returns. The other side of this is, um, as an active manager, um, such as PIMCO, right, we utilize these tools, again, as part of the overall investment recommendation. And, and so our goal is for this to, to enhance the investment process uh, and, and to overall feed into our, our allocations on a sector basis, on a line-by-line -line basis, um, and, and some funds will have more or less use of, of the relative exclusions in, in accordance with that. So, so it very much depends on how a strategy is constructed uh, for, for investors who have, have less appetite or very limited appetite to, to, to just purely use the exclusions tool here and are really looking for, for specific outcomes based on what change they can have. Oftentimes, you actually want to be invested in some of those controversial sectors. You, you want to say, let me go into the hard to abate sectors, for, for example, from an environmental standpoint. Let me try to capitalize and finance the leaders, those who are making a difference. Those are going to take very, very carbon intense part of the economy and, and make change over the next 20 years. Um, that can be a strategy in and of itself. And, and th there will be winners and losers there. Others say, I, I, I want very limited carbon exposure and, and I don't want exposure to, to, that, to those sectors, um, regardless of what the respective names or, or potential investment opportunities in that space are doing. And so it means different things to different people. And, and the point is that you can strike a balance between uh, what, what you're looking for in terms of exposure, in terms of what you're looking for from a return perspective versus either non-ESG or conventional products, as well as a respective benchmark. Yeah, it sounds like um, you, know, you mentioned the exclusion tool. Uh, it sounds like you mentioned you, you can either use an, an exclusion approach where you're putting downward pressure on, uh, you know, you're basically trying to starve the starve the funds available to those uh, to those companies that are uh, that are emitting or doing the wrong thing. Um, but then there's the influence approach, uh, and so that's that's the conversation by the sound of it that you know you say to the client, do you want to influence or do you want to starve or put downward pressure by limiting or, or removing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we utilize both, right? Um, we, we certainly have uh, core exclusions for our ESG vehicles, um, but we also very much think that we, we want to be able to make a difference. And it's difficult to make a difference uh, in some of these sectors, some of these areas of the economy, 
if you're not involved and if you're not exposed. And so ideally you have as many tools as possible when you're pursuing these types of strategies. Yeah. So as a fund manager, you know, the seat at the table, as you mentioned, to be able to influence and make a difference, uh, having a seat at the table is really important to do that. Cause if you're not at the table, you didn't, you don't have a voice, I guess. Um, as a fund manager, how important is that to you and, and what sort of things are you doing in that space to then put pressure on um, or, or create that influence? It's, it's critically important, and, and in particular for a fund manager of, of, of our size. With, with over two, $2 trillion globally, we, we really really do have a duty to, to utilize our platform um, with regards to, to our ESG efforts to, to try to have an influence and to, and to try to, to drive changes in areas where we believe there's there's a broad benefit for, for our investors, for our clients, for portfolios, and, and ultimately for, for society at large. Um, and, and we do that through, through engagement efforts, part of some of that bilaterally. That can be more private. That can be more uh, utilizing relationships that the firm has had uh, far before ESG was a popular phrase, where we've been a lender for, for, for several years or even longer. Where we've known the management teams. Um, and where we want to we have candid conversations about what, what we believe are, are deficiencies or risks or opportunities for improvement in a business mix and, 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 and in terms of, of capital allocation and, and other parts of the business model. But then we also are very active in, in certain collaborative efforts, um, bodies where as, as, a, as an active investor and, and market participant, we can contribute to, develop, to the development of frameworks, um, areas like IIGCC, where we've been an active member for several years, uh, where we can give the market guidance in terms of what we look for and what we utilize in our own tools, um, wanting to see things such as science-based targets, wanting to see alignment with the Paris Agreement, wanting to see actual interim reporting and disclosures on some of these efforts. Um, particularly as more and more commitments are made, being able to judge success and doing that through through groups where uh, there can be power in numbers with other like-minded and, and other sophisticated investors, um, but also in a way that, that you know, within reason um, and in a constructive sense is, is public so that so that the market can, can look at the, can, can also judge this progress and hopefully that drives uh, more, more activity and, and it becomes uh, a process where um, our, our engagement, there's, there's multiples of return on our engagement because it, it changes market standards more broadly. Yeah, fantastic. That really, really around that accountability and transparency of what's going on. And I guess that it sounds like that's probably the best approach to start with, that influence uh, piece, uh, hold people accountable, uh, add transparency. And if, and if they don't do anything, then, then look at the exclusion side. Exactly, exactly. Robert, thank you so much for being part of this particular episode. I look forward to chatting to you in the next one where we start talking about impact and social change. Thank you very much. I look forward to continuing the conversation. 